Well, we are in John chapter 20, and we are looking uh, at the famous scene with the disciple who has come to be known as Doubting Thomas. And many scholars think this scene uh, is the climax of John's gospel, and I'm inclined to think that they're right. So again, we are in John chapter 20. Uh, We're going to pick it up with verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Lord, it is safe to say that we count ourselves as blessed because we are a people gathered some 2,000 years after these events and we believe. So often, though, Lord, we do have disbelief. So often we do struggle with doubt on any number of different things. And so, Lord, we pray as we enter into this time of meditation on your word that your spirit would be amongst us. And though sometimes you answer our deepest questions, sometimes you don't. And like with Job, we would thank and we would pray that your presence is enough. So Lord, we pray that your presence would be among us now, that as we read in the book of Revelation, you would walk amongst us in our very midst, just as you have promised to do. So Lord Jesus, be amongst us, we pray. We pray this through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, we read in verse 24 that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them on the first night of his resurrection. And we don't know where he was, and apparently he was the only one besides Judas, obviously, who was missing. But there's a hint here, or at least the implication, that by not gathering with God's people, he had missed out on something uh, critical, i.e. that he did not witness the resurrected Jesus, and he had not received the Holy Spirit from him. So he's not an initial witness to the the resurrection. Even so, the other disciples, his friends, they tell him, we have seen the Lord. And as we know, he rejected their claim. And I think the issue as uh, John Chrysostom, really writing nearly 1,600 years ago, points out this was was not Thomas uh, discrediting Uh, his fellow disciples. So it's not that he called their character or anything like that into question. Now, to be sure, other people have tried to discredit them, most pointedly in their own time with the Sanhedrin who paid off the Roman soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb and in turn told them to spread the story that the, the disciples had stolen the body under the cover of night with the implication that they're lying to you and not to be trusted. No, Thomas didn't attempt to discredit his friends. It's rather that he could not believe them because of what he saw as the impossibility of the thing itself. 
And all of us, whether we are, are willing to uh, admit it or, or not, we ought to be sympathetic to his disbelief. We ought to be sympathetic to his disbelief. I, so, for example, I'd be willing to bet most of the adults here in this room right now can personally tell really strange or weird or maybe even miraculous stories, even as the rest of us, as we may listen to them, might hesitate to believe them. We might be thinking, ah, they're overreading it. Ah, maybe it didn't really happen that way. Maybe they're just kind of hoping and wanting it to be the case, even as they're our friends. This sort of thing happens all the time. How much more so a story about seeing a dead man, a crucified man, raised from the dead. So the, the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord and his rejection actually builds on their claim. He said, unless I see, as they claimed, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nail and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. And it, so it's not enough to see Jesus, we all know our brains can misinterpret what our eyes see. You've all had that experience when it's dark at night or you're in some place that you're already freaked out being that you start seeing things that maybe aren't there. Thomas required confirmation through touch. In fact, if you look at the Greek there, it's not, the word he uses is not merely touch as we would typically use it. It's, it's a word for throw my hand into his side. So he means I, I need to be able to grab it. I need to be able to shake it and really get my hands on it before I'm going to believe. Now we might say Thomas is like, though as we're going to see, he's crucially different. We might say he is like modern skeptical empiricists that, that go well beyond the standard of seeing is believing and are skeptical about all claims until they are personally able to confirm the truth by handling and investigating uh, a thing to their own satisfaction. And radical skeptics put themselves in the position of judge and jury and demand the right to determine what is true or false according to whatever standard they think will fully meet their bar for truth. And as an aside, rarely does that standard remain fixed. And in the case of the claims of Christianity, uh, the goalposts always seem to get pushed back as objections are answered, and I think that's telling. Even so, looking for evidence and confirmation, especially with a claim as big as the resurrection, I don't think is a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. So, for example, I think good science rightly requires replication of an experiment by other people, by other groups, before claiming something is provisionally true. That's how science works. But the problem with looking to science to prove or disprove the resurrection is that the resurrection of Jesus is not a repeatable natural event. Like say the process of oxidation or the conversion of water into its various phases. The resurrection is no more a repeatable event than the planes hitting the towers on 9-11 is a naturally repeating event. No, quite the opposite. The claim of the New Testament authors is that this was a one-time, history-changing, thoroughly unique event. And so science is wonderful in certain arenas. 
But dealing with non-repeating historical events is not its arena. It's why I don't go asking chemists or biologists about what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD or what happened at Ford's Theater in 1865 and why I don't think a ruler is going to help you much in determining what happened when Julius Caesar was assassinated. Even so, evidence and eyewitnesses and confirmation are critical for believing anything. And when it comes to historical events, we are indebted to historical witnesses. So anything in the past, it works that way. Anything in the past, it works that way. And radical skepticism of the kind that has been common for the last couple hundred years isn't really interested in evidence or eyewitnesses. And in turn, it, it can never really come to any conclusions about anything because it refuses to trust any and all eyewitnesses except the ones that already confirm their held position. So for example, when I run up against people who say radically skeptical claims and just go on Twitter and there you go. Anytime I, I, I run across anybody who, who's making a radically skeptical claim like, you really, you mean to tell me you really believe they put a man on the moon? You believe that? I always try and one-up them. Every single time. I don't care what it is, because it's just fun, because I'm like that. I try and one-up them every time. And so I would say, wait a minute. You really believe there's a moon? Seriously? After all, how do we know the moon is real? How do we know it's not an illusion of mass psychosis perpetrated by a secret race of wizards who have for thousands of years done this sort of thing and that now stand behind our government? How do you know? Have you ever touched the moon? Hmm? Have you? Ever been there? Ever walked on its surface? Twelve people have claimed to walk on the moon. Twelve, that's it? Hmm. And only four of them are alive now. Am I really expected to believe 12 men's testimony, some grainy videotape from 60 years ago, and what my government says about this stuff? No thank you, there's no moon. You can see how this works. There is no such thing as undeniable, unassailable proof. Anything and everything can be called into question and doubted, even the moon, even the moon. But doubt doesn't have to be so radically skeptical as my, I hope you could tell, sarcastic and facetious example to see that humans have always struggled with trusting witnesses and authorities. And it goes all the way back to Adam. We see this in Jesus' ministry, for example, with the various responses to his miracles. Some people denied that they happened at all. Others did not deny that he did them, but rather denied that he was sent from God and instead said he was in league with the devil. Still others interpreted him favorably, even as they, they weren't willing to call him the Son of God. And still others saw them as a threat and wanted to kill him because of it. Those are all different groups of people interpreting the same facts and the same dead, things that they saw with their own eyes. You see, all knowledge requires an element of faith. It's just how human knowledge works. So if someone tells you, and this is what has been thrown at Christianity for 400 years, 
If someone tells you I'm for knowledge and facts and the truth and objectivity and you're merely about beliefs and opinions and faith and subjectivity, friends, that's rhetoric. That's just rhetoric. Just know they've bought into the biggest epistemological myth of the last 400 years and the irony is, of course, that they were taught that myth by authorities they took on faith. You see, all of us, and this is just as, as true of the sciences as it is learning how to play a musical instrument, are dependent on witnesses and authorities. We take them on faith that they are correct in order to know anything at all. It's why the question, who do you say Jesus is, is always a question of which authorities and witnesses you take seriously. So, Thomas and his doubt is actually not all that unusual. Even so, as you read through John, there are glimpses that perhaps he had struggled with doubt, in particular to him, before this moment. So unlike modern skeptics, and I don't think Thomas is one, Thomas actually wanted to believe. And I think his strenuous demand for proof is evidence of that. But he struggled to get around what seemed like common sense. I mean, dead people don't come back from the dead. So, for example, in John chapter 11, when Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus had died, Thomas's response was, well, okay, let us go that we may die with him. So instead of... Uh, of the hope of life, he's resigned himself to the idea that their fates won't be any better than his friend Lazarus. And of course, in a world without resurrection, that's exactly right. And not long after that moment, as you know, he would see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. In John 14, and we looked at this, this passage this, this last fall, in response to Jesus teaching his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And again, Thomas believed in Jesus. He's committed his life to following him, but still Thomas was honest that he had no idea. He had no idea of what's coming. And he was not putting on a hopeful smile on his ignorance about the future, wanting to fit in like, yeah, I know the answer. Especially a future beyond the grave. No, he, he was not confident about any of that, and he was not confident that Jesus knew either. So he's not like Peter, for example, who, who made bold claims about his willingness to die for Jesus, and when things got rough, he ran away. No, Thomas wanted to trust and believe Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, but he was struggling to fully trust him. And Jesus' response to Thomas' doubt, which is what that was in John 14, it's one of the most famous lines of the book. Here's how he answers him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, in verse 26, we read that eight days later, the disciples were meeting together again. Now, as an aside, the way the Jews counted days began with the day they were actually on. So eight days later to the Jews of that time is, for us, seven days later. So it's been a week. It's why when Jesus said he would rise on the third day, he started counting on Friday. 
right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. And why modern people are like, that's not right. That, that's how they counted back then. So it's been, it's one week later, exactly one week from his resurrection, and the disciples were gathered together. And this time, Thomas was with them. Now, most commentators I've read see in this gathering the weekly assembly for worship. This is the body of Christ, though small. It is the body of Christ come together, and it's telling that it's in the midst of this assembly gathered for worship that Jesus appeared again to his disciples. It's public. Now, as an aside, this was exactly what Jesus promised to do and continues to promise to do for his people. So forsaking, as Hebrews calls it, or, or perhaps more accurately for us, uh, being loose or, or flippant with the weekly gathering for worship, it has consequences, not least of which is missing out on Jesus walking among his people. So while it is good, if you miss, to catch up with a sermon online, you're actually missing, as good as or bad as the word may be, you're missing the presence of Christ with his people when you decide not to come. And it's also telling that this was not a private vision for Thomas alone. This event happened in the midst of where two or three were gathered. And it's just like the imagery in the book of Revelation where Jesus is described as walking among his churches. Jesus again uh, greets his disciples. He shows up immediately. He appears to them. He greets his disciples with peace be with you, reaffirming the shalom and the wholehearted reconciliation between God and his people, the advent of the new creation and the kingdom of God that, that Jesus had brought about uh, through his death and resurrection. We talked a lot about that last week. He then immediately turned to Thomas and said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And let me point out just a few things about this moment. There's a lot here, but let me just point out a few things. First, it is clear that Jesus knew what had happened with Thomas. This is the imagery of him walking amongst his people, whether they see him or not. So this means, and this is the way Thomas saw him, that Jesus had knowledge that only God could have. And it's very similar to, to how Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, where he gave her her entire back history. And she's like, what? Who are you? Second, it's also clear that Jesus was still very much a human. Now, to be sure, he was changed, but still, he invited Thomas to investigate his wounds by sight and by touch. Now, I was initially planning on speaking more uh, about Jesus' body, but for time's sake, I'd, I'd cut out the whole section. So let me just say this. Let me encourage you to go read what Paul says about the resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, if you want to know about your future life, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, it's why I almost read it entirely, the whole thing, when I do a funeral. It's that important. So let me encourage you to go read it. And what is clear from the gospel accounts and from Paul is that Jesus, and by implication, our future life, our future bodies, was the same person but transformed. The same body but redeemed and glorified. And as for us, it will include the full removal of sin from us where we will no longer be capable of sin, will no longer 
desire sin, which is unimaginable to me, and death will no longer touch us. As Paul says, instead of having a natural body, we will have a spiritual body, which sounds kind of like a contradiction in terms, but I think N.T. Wright is right when he takes it to mean an imperishable body indwelled, empowered by the Spirit. By the way, we already have the Spirit now, which is why Paul has no problem calling us new creations in this present evil darkness, despite our perishable bodies. All right, third, Jesus wasn't chiding or, or condemning Thomas's doubt. Lots of people read it that way. I don't think Jesus was chiding or condemning Thomas's doubt. I think rather by directly addressing it, he's actually showing him compassion. So like how Jesus came to Mary in her grief and her, I think we could rightly say, probably her depression and her inability to see Jesus and called her by name. And how he came to the other disciples in their fear and in their dread of getting killed too and turned that dread into joy. So with Thomas, he meets him at his point of sin, you might say at his point where he is really struggling in his doubt and he restores his belief to him. And I think it's important to repeat that Thomas was not a radical skeptic like we see in our own times. He was not sneering at the Jesus movement. He wasn't looking for reasons to continue in his rejection of Jesus like is so common today. No, he was already a believer, but he was struggling to trust and believe at this crucial juncture. You know, and it's a rare Christian who, who doesn't have doubts or struggles with God on something or another. It's why, as a pastor, I'm not perfect about this, but I try, I try to be really patient with people over points of doctrine or with, with questions or reservations people have about God or its people. So I'll talk and engage with radical skeptics. I, I do from time to time, but if someone is looking for reasons not to believe, well, there's only so much evidence uh, you, you can put before a person before you finally have to say, here it is, take it or leave it, and you move on. I try to treat people who want to believe but are struggling over some point or issue. I try to be as patient as I can because this is exactly what Jesus does. This is exactly what Jesus does. So, for example, maybe like Adam, you, you doubt that what God has for your life will actually satisfy your deepest longings. And then maybe, maybe he's keeping you, uh, keeping things back from you, especially when you compare your life to other people. That is at the heart of our confession of sin we've already done today. That's at the heart of it. Maybe like the tax collector from Jesus' parable, you struggle to believe that God actually has forgiven you or really loves you or really delights in you. Other people, sure, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. It's like when I hear pastors not merely condemn abortion, which I think we should, but speak of the women who have had an abortion as committing an unforgivable sin, not realizing that there's a good chance such a woman might be sitting in their congregation. Does God refuse to love those women? Can God delight in such a woman? Yes. 
you better believe it. If God can restore David, that murdering, sexually assaulting, causing thousands of lives sort of king, he absolutely, he absolutely can forgive you. If God can love a man like me and use him for his purposes, he can delight in you too. So maybe you've, you've been hurt by other Christians. That's pretty common. Maybe you've been hurt by other Christians or have been burned by a church or you've seen the abuses of churches or elders or pastors or, or Christian leaders or whatever, and you've wondered, where is God in all of that? It could be any number of things. There's lots of issues that people really struggle with today. But I'm convinced that, that God most often meets our doubts Sometimes by answering specific questions, but more so, and this is from personal experience, more so through his patience and giving us himself. It's like when Paul struggled with his thorn in the side, and we have no idea what that thorn actually was. God's answer to Paul's prayer was, but my grace is sufficient for you. That's answering Paul in his pain and in his suffering Maybe his doubts with God's presence. Now, in response to Jesus, Thomas gave the highest confession in the book of, uh, of John. My Lord and my God. This is why I think this is the climax of the book. And this is not merely a personal statement like how you hear people say, well, Jesus is my personal Savior. I don't even know what that means, by the way. Is, it, is he just saving you? That's not what John means. No, in the Greek, uh, Thomas purposely says, the Lord and the God is mine. The Lord and the God, as in Jesus is the God of Israel come in the flesh, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and like the cherubim in God's throne room, I must confess his name. Now circle back to what Jesus said in response to Thomas's doubt in chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So Jesus took those words and confirmed them to him by his presence. As Augustine commented, he said, Thomas saw and touched the man, and then acknowledged the God whom he neither saw nor touched, that is Yahweh of the Old Testament, like what you see at the burning bush with Moses. And this happened just as Jesus promised it would happen. So Thomas could finally believe wholeheartedly, and like Mary with her grief and the other disciples with their fear, Jesus had turned Thomas's doubt into joy and worship. And that's important because this highest of confessions puts Jesus's followers in direct conflict with the world's powers. Like the Roman Emperor Domitian, who, who claimed, for example, to be the Lord and the God, and demanded not just obedience, but worship from everyone under his reign. As we often say in our profession of faith, the rule of Jesus Christ covers the whole world. To follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere, without fitting in as light in the darkness, as salt in a spoiling world. Well, John ends the section uh, with what is perhaps Jesus' final beatitude in the Gospels. 
He says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So like the generations of Israelites that came a long time after the Exodus, having not personally witnessed what God did in Egypt, we are invited to believe the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus and in turn trust that God's promises as they proclaim them to us are for us just as much as they were for them. So, so like with Thomas, Jesus, he's, he's saying, blessed are you for believing. If you are here and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's evidence that he lives. Because nobody believes this apart from that. Your God is with you. So like with Thomas, Jesus is, is not asking for blind faith. You sometimes hear that with Christianity, people talking about Christianity. It's not. Jesus does not ask for blind faith. The only people who ask for blind faith are con men. And even then, they will still present some evidence for why you should buy whatever they're selling. As we will talk about in the weeks to come, the whole point of John writing his gospel, and this is true of all the gospels, is to provide a credible eyewitness account of Jesus' life and what those events mean. That's why his account is probably the most theological of all four gospels. Lots of people witnessed Jesus. Think about that. Lots of people witnessed Jesus. Just like lots of people witnessed the Exodus and the Ten Plagues, and they got it wrong. You know, of course, in our day, people routinely deny that Jesus even existed, even as no credible historian, Christian, or otherwise would countenance such a claim. Jesus is far more far more attested by historical evidence than, say, Julius Caesar. In fact, he is arguably the most historically evidenced person of ancient history. So a person would do just as well to deny the existence of the moon as to deny the existence of Jesus as a real historical figure. That's what radical skepticism gets you. So really the question then, once we get past the radical skepticism, Really, the question can be framed as C.S. Lewis famously framed it. He said Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or he was Lord. Well, if he was a liar or a lunatic, then as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christians are the biggest idiots the world has ever known. Full stop. And of course, many people view Christians in just this light. But if he's Lord, then Thomas gave the model response the model response if you believe jesus is lord and god as thomas confessed him then you are blessed and that blessing does not show up in merely holding this confession in your mind like you do the existence of the moon no that blessing shows up in worship thomas belongs to god and in turn worshiped jesus as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, again in John 4, the Father is looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. So if you know, if you confess with your lips, which by the way is not merely something we say as if we are mindlessly reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer. Confession is your mouth revealing your heart's deepest convictions. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, then your feet will follow 
and it will look like a life of worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible patience, for how you patiently walk with your people as we deal with doubts or struggles or sometimes an inability to understand uh, what your word teaches or what you're after or the way we can even be syncretistic in our worship, blending so many other things with the pure religion or how we have besetting sin and we're stubborn and how we hold on to searching for pleasure or truth or beauty and things other than you. Lord, you're so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. May we, like Thomas, as you have revealed yourself to us in your scripture, may we turn again daily to you in repentance, wanting a life that says in every aspect of our life, the Lord, the God of all there is, is mine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.